Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. On the internet, you can truly be yourself. Let's say you make a fake account, an account that doesn't bear your true name but bears your true desires. And through this anonymity, you can really express yourself. You can show the world who you really are. In the early days of the internet, you could even create and join anonymous spaces and communities using a pseudonym to represent who you were throughout all of your interactions. Back then, chat rooms were often the only forms of interaction for people as they navigated their way through the unregulated and mysterious World Wide Web. And it was in those chat rooms where you could get to know people, have conversations about anything, and could talk freely without fear of being scrutinized or judged. And it was in these chat rooms, on forums and websites, where anonymous users divulged their deepest, darkest hidden secrets that they often kept from spouses, friends, and family members. You see, through anonymity, a person can tap into one's true self. Being completely anonymous is a way to explore how you feel on the inside, and you don't have to worry about how you're being perceived on the outside. That's the beauty of it. But there are dangers that lie within. For example, while wearing that anonymous mask on the internet, people sometimes experiment with role-playing, meaning that they completely change their identity and sometimes their entire personality to make the person on the outside match who they are on the inside. In the early days, the internet was seen as a safe space to interact with people who shared the same ideas, beliefs, and interests, even if they were taboo. And this, unfortunately, was the trap that 35-year-old Sharon Lopatka fell into in today's story. Sharon was a trusting person, a little too trusting, and it was this misplaced trust that would place her in an early grave. This is the twisted story of the murder of Sharon Lopatka. I'm Colin Brown, and you're listening to Murder in America. It was October 13, 1996, and 35-year-old Sharon Lopatka had just arrived at her online lover's trailer in North Carolina. The home of her internet lover was Humble, a trailer on a parcel of wooded property. But Sharon, at the time, was excited to meet the quote-unquote man of her dreams. This man, who she had traveled all the way from Baltimore to North Carolina to meet, Robert Glass, who was in his late 40s, had promised to fulfill all of her sexual needs while they chatted on the internet, and allegedly he would go on to indeed fill her needs. Over the course of three days, from October 13th to October 16th, 1996, Robert pleasured Sharon in ways she never thought were possible. They pushed the limits of a sexual relationship, severed the ties of societal norms, and went beyond what was acceptable. You see, Robert and Sharon's relationship had started in a chat room on the internet, a relatively new space at the time, and had quickly evolved into something more tangible, something more real. In just a moment, the relationship had turned from empty words and promises into real-world actions and consequences. But sadly, something was amiss, and at the end of those three days of pleasure, Sharon would wind up dead, and her husband, back in Maryland, would soon be looking for her. On October 20th, 1996, seven days after Sharon arrived in North Carolina, her husband Victor began to grow concerned. 
His wife told him that she was going to Georgia to meet some acquaintances, and he never thought much of it. However, shortly after her departure, Victor found a note from Sharon that said she wouldn't be returning home. And when he read the contents of this letter, he was disturbed. In her own words, after telling him that she had left, Sharon wrote, quote, if my body is never retrieved, don't worry. Know that I'm at peace. Obviously, this was very alarming. So Victor immediately went to the police to file a missing persons report. The police department in Hampstead, Maryland, where the couple lived, had recently created a new department called the Computer Crime Unit. And on that same day that Victor discovered the note, the department was told to search Sharon's computer for information on her whereabouts. And after a short search, they found substantial evidence linking her to a man in North Carolina named Bobby Glass. Victor was shocked. He had never heard of a man named Bobby Glass and he knew his partner to be very loyal. He would have never suspected that Sharon was cheating on him. But immediately, the local police in North Carolina were alerted and they sent out officers to surveil Bobby Glass's trailer. They hoped that in doing this, they would find Sharon. Police Captain Danny Barlow would later say during the stakeout that Bobby kept up his usual routine and he moved about as if nothing happened. He went to work every day, just kept up his routine. We watched him day and night and there was absolutely no sign of her. After a few agonizing days with no solid answers, on October 25th, 1996, 15 days after Sharon's disappearance, Judge Beverly T. Beale issued a search warrant for Bobby Glass's trailer. Bobby was at work at the time that the investigators arrived, and seizing the opportunity, they immediately went to work. When authorities arrived at Bobby Glass's decrepit turquoise trailer, they noted that the lawn was unkempt and covered with garbage and abandoned toys. Needing more evidence, the authorities entered Bobby's trailer and were disgusted for the inside of the home was just as cluttered and filthy as the outside. Inside of the trailer, police recovered personal items that belonged to Sharon Lopatka, dirty bondage paraphernalia, child pornography, various drugs, and a 357 Magnum pistol. Over the course of that afternoon, authorities removed multiple boxes from the home filled with over a thousand computer disks, magazines, videotapes, and even a Cybermax computer. But it was only when they searched the exterior of the home, and unfortunately, they would discover what they were looking for. While wandering around outside in the yard, a group of officers spotted a fresh mound of dirt located 75 feet from the trailer, near a child's swing set, off a path that Bobby had created to help him dispose of and burn his trash. Immediately, this pile of fresh dirt was suspicious, and police went to work to uncover what Bobby had recently buried in the yard. Sadly, they wouldn't have to dig deep to find what they were looking for. After a few minutes of digging, authorities unearthed Sharon Lopatka's decomposing corpse, buried only two and a half feet underneath the pile of fresh soil. A man named D.A. Brown, a Caldwell County investigator, would later tell the Washington Post, quote, If the body had been buried in the woodlands behind the trailer, we would have never found her, end quote. On that fateful day, Sharon's body was found with her wrists and ankles bound with rope. There was a rope around her neck, and she had abrasions to her neck and breasts. After they recovered Sharon's decomposing body, the authorities immediately got an arrest warrant for Bobby Glass. Upon hearing this, investigator D.A. Brown made his way to the government center where he knew he would find Bobby, and they arrested him right as he was heading out of the men's restroom. According to police, Bobby didn't put up a fight that day. He didn't even ask why he was being arrested, which was strange. He had simply put his hands behind his back, hung his head, maintained his composure, and cooperated with the authorities. Later on, D.A. Brown, the man that made the arrest, would state that at the time, Bobby Glass had acted, quote, very cool. In the day after his arrest, on October 26, 1996, the government center fired Bobby and immediately removed his picture from the company's website. But there were still so many questions. How did Sharon, a married woman from Baltimore, Maryland, end up outside of a man's trailer in North Carolina brutally murdered? And now we're gonna take our first ad break. 
Today's show is brought to you by June's Journey, one of Courtney and I's favorite games to play at night right before we go to bed. But why do we love this game? Well, it's because there are a few things as captivating as unraveling a family mystery. I definitely agree with that statement. Especially a mystery with as many twists as June's Journey. In the game, you play as June Parker and investigate beautifully detailed scenes set in the decadent 20s to help solve her sister's murder. With a mystery that runs this deep, you'll be coming back to explore new scenes knowing that the next clue is always in reach. We've talked about this game on the show before, but let me tell you, it truly is one of the most enjoyable iPhone games that I've ever played. It's a hidden object game where you search for objects and try to find clues to solve this mystery. And what I like about it is that it's not a brainless game. This game actually makes me think. And through thinking, it actually relaxes me. I know that that doesn't sound possible, but it really, really does. And with 30 million downloads across the planet, June's Journey is a game for everyone. So pick up where you left off to uncover new secrets or start your investigation today and download June's Journey. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. June's Journey. And now, let's get back to today's story. A short while later, to obtain more information about their suspect, the authorities brought in Bobby's ex-wife Sherry for questioning. She told them that the couple shared three children, two girls aged 7 and 10, and a little boy who was just 6 years old. A polite young woman, aged 35, Sherry spoke about the hardships that she had suddenly faced after Bobby's arrest. She told police that the community had turned their backs on her and wanted to blame her for what happened, saying that if she hadn't left him, this murder never would have occurred. She even told the police that her friends and family had blamed her for Bobby's secret internet vices. Wait, what secret internet vices? But Sherry told them that she knew the truth. She said, They don't really know everything. I left. This is hard to say, but I left because he said he was no longer attracted to me. But when I went to hug him, he would push me away. When I said I loved him, he said it back in a way that he didn't really mean it. But the final straw was when my kids asked me why their daddy didn't love me anymore. But Sherry still had a soft spot for her husband, and throughout the interviews, she described how good he was at his job and how smart he was with computers. She even told the authorities that at one point in their marriage, he had encouraged her to challenge herself, even when she lacked self-confidence. It seemed that Bobby had cast a spell on Sherry, but after their marriage had dissolved, he had turned to the dark side. But that wasn't all the story. According to Sherry, and this was new information to the police, computers had been Bobby's downfall. Computers became his life. He ate, slept, everything about computers. He would stay up almost all night on the internet. I'd have to drag him out of bed in the morning. The interviews were extensive, but after a while, the authorities struck gold with Sherry. She told him that one day, after snooping through his computer while he was at work, she had unwittingly uncovered her husband's secret life. According to her official account, Bobby had saved numerous chat sessions with women that contained disturbing information. Information she had learned that was so disturbing that she refused to discuss these matters with the police. She then stated that he often kept sexual magazines around their house. Magazines that never bothered her, just as long as the kids didn't find them. But what she had found on his chat logs was something that had deeply disturbed her. These logs, in fact, were so disturbing that she refused to even revisit them in her own mind. But eventually, after ruminating on the fact that her estranged husband was now accused of murdering an innocent woman, she decided to divulge this information to the police. According to Sherry, after discovering these disturbing chat logs on her husband's computer, she felt the need to discuss her findings with him. And one night during dinner, she gathered enough strength and finally confronted him. She would later say, quote, One night I cooked him all of his favorites. He was in a good mood to talk for a change, so I asked him about it. I quoted something he had said on the chat session, and all of the color drained out of his face. He knew then that I knew. I guess he underestimated my abilities on the computer. I've been confused by this. He's such a nice, gentle person. If he did do it, I really can't see him doing something like that killing someone or meaning to even after all i read but there's a side to him a side of him that i don't know end quote while bobby sat in jail awaiting for his trial his only sibling a sister named joanne 
said that she was in disbelief after hearing her brother had been charged with murder. She would later say, quote, I don't consider my brother an animal, and I don't consider him violent. If my brother did anything, that's between him and God. End quote. After his arrest, Bobby's father-in-law, Fred Harless, was quoted stating that Bobby was one of the nicest men he had ever met. In an interview with the Baltimore Sun, Harless even stated that Bobby had paid two mortgage payments for him when he was strapped for cash. He was just as good a person as you would want to meet. He was better to us in some ways than our own children. Meanwhile, throughout the legal proceedings, Sharon's family and close friends remained tight-lipped about the entire situation. Sharon's father-in-law, John Lepatka Jr., was the only family member to comment on the crime. He made a simple statement and said that the family was heartbroken and that they wanted the media to leave them alone. Too much has come out already about this case. The respectful thing to do would be to leave us alone. This is a tragedy, nothing more and nothing less." End quote. But it was in the police interrogation rooms, behind the scenes, where everything changed. After Bobby was arrested, he spoke to the police about what happened during the time Sharon stayed in his trailer. He said that he and Sharon engaged in rough sex and had consensually acted out several dark fantasies and that he had used random objects from around the home to probe her and sexually penetrate her, all while she was tied up. But according to Bobby, Sharon had allowed him to do all of these things and she had even asked him to use a rope to choke her out during sex. At one point during the intercourse, Sharon had even told Bobby to tighten the rope as she climaxed, which is a known thing that people do. According to Bobby, during one session, he accidentally tightened the rope too much and he ended up strangling her. He would later say, quote, I don't know how much I pulled the rope. I never wanted to kill her, but she ended up dead, end quote. It was shortly after this confession, after the computer data was retrieved from both Bobby and Sharon's computers, when the full truth of this twisted situation came to light. And now we're gonna take our second ad break. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I'm always learning new things about myself, and I think that it's important when you live your life to be constantly searching within yourself to discover who you truly are. Because getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. Recently, I've learned how I react to certain situations in life, and I've discovered some tools that I can use to help me better cope with stressful situations when they arise. And that's why I love therapy, honestly. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. So if you're thinking of discovering new things about yourself or there's something that you need to work through and you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So, discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MIA to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash M-I-A. And now let's get back to today's story. To tell you the whole story of this crime, we need to backtrack a bit, back to the early 1960s, to the year that Sharon Lepatko was born. Sharon Rena Denberg was born on September 20th, 1961, in the state of Maryland, to Orthodox Jewish parents Mr. and Mrs. Abraham J. Denberg. The couple would go on to have three more daughters after Sharon, and would raise their family in the Beth Tefillo Congregation in Baltimore, Maryland, the largest synagogue in the United States. Sharon's father, Abraham, was a deeply religious man and a cantor at their synagogue who led songs and chanted prayers to the congregation. 
With a family who was so deeply invested in their faith, Sharon had a very normal childhood and was known to have a lot of friends. She attended Pikesville High School in Maryland where she participated in field hockey and volleyball. She was also a member of the school's choir club and really enjoyed singing and expressing herself. During her junior and senior year, Sharon had been a library aide and a nurse's aide. If anything, Sharon was an active young woman with a promising future. Nothing had ever seemed amiss. In fact, former classmates of Sharon's would even describe her as as normal as you can get. A former classmate of hers, Steve Hyman, even said, quote, she wasn't an outcast or anything of that nature. I think making her this weird loner is just some media thing, end quote. Upon her graduation in 1979, Sharon held a variety of jobs which even included a stint as a clerk in an FBI fingerprint lab, a job that she stayed at for 18 months. In 1991, when she was 29 years old, Sharon met a man named Victor Lopatka, a construction supervisor and a Catholic from Ellicott City, a nearby community in Maryland. Eventually, the two would marry, but Sharon's parents were never supportive of the relationship because Sharon had quit Judaism and converted to Catholicism. In fact, instead of celebrating this marriage, Sharon's parents, the Denbergs, considered it to be more of an embarrassment. A close friend of Sharon's, Sarah Weinberg, would later say that marrying Victor was a way to break free from her conventional lifestyle. She needed something in her life, a way to break away from her conservative upbringing, a way for her to, as an adult, rebel against her parents. After her marriage, Sharon's relationship with her parents became estranged. In the early 90s, Sharon and her new husband, Victor, moved to a suburb in Hampstead, Maryland and they purchased a beautiful ranch-style home at the end of a cul-de-sac. Back then, the town of Hampstead was the perfect mix of a rural small town mixed with suburbia, and the two had settled down in the small township of Indian Court, a quiet, family-friendly neighborhood where children could run through the streets and play without having to worry about any danger. After getting married, Sharon purchased a, quote, money-making kit for $39 and it outlined ways for people to make money from advertisements and 1-900 numbers. And she decided that she wanted to earn extra money while working from home. After diving deep into the training, Sharon started several small internet businesses one business she created was called Classified Concepts. To make money, she would rewrite ad copies and send them back to advertisers for $50 an advertisement. It was a small hustle, but she made it work. Another website she created was called House of Dion, which was basically home decorating tips that she would mail out for $7. An advertisement for the business at the time read, quote, Home decorating secrets seen in the posh homes from the New England states to the Hollywood homes that can now be yours. Never published before. Quick, easy ways to decorate your home. End quote. Eventually, Sharon would befriend a neighbor named Diane Safar, and the two would go on to create another business. Their new endeavor revolved around a 30-page booklet that they created titled, quote, Dion's Secrets of Home Decorating Guide, which advertised country crafts and home decorating tips. Diane would later say that the two had small success with the booklet, selling it to local churches and ladies' groups. She would later say, quote, Here we were decorating our houses one day and talking to each other for advice. And we just said, hey, we should put this stuff in a book. It was fun, end quote. A third website created by Sharon offered psychic services and advice. The advertisement read, Velado, America's favorite warlock, will cast a spell for you. The advertisement stated that Velado Dion was from a small town in Manila where magic and the mystical sciences are commonly used in everyday life. On these websites, Sharon would post ads for other services, often with a 1-900 number attached, and she received a percentage of the profit for the phone calls made. And this hustle worked for a while. Sharon was making money, using the internet to her advantage, and bringing in funds for she and her husband, Victor, to save and invest. But a few years into the marriage, Sharon's internet use started to dive down a darker path. Eventually, and secretly, she created an alter internet ego that she nicknamed Nancy Carlson. 
Using this fake name, Sharon began to market graphic pornographic material that depicted women being drugged, chloroformed, and hypnotized until they were unconscious. In the content that she marketed, once they were unconscious, various sex acts would be performed on these women while they were being videoed and photographed. Sharon also started selling her used underwear under the pseudonym of Nancy Carlson, and her first post was made to an open forum frequented by those interested in sexual erotica. On the forum, Nancy's advertisement read, Hi, my name is Nancy. I'm 25, have blonde hair, green eyes. I'm 5'6 and weigh 121 pounds. Is anyone out there interested in buying my worn panties or pantyhose? This is not a joke or wacky internet scam. I'm very serious about this. If you are serious too, send me an email. Under the pseudonym Nancy Carlson, Sharon marketed herself falsely as an adult film star and a dominatrix. She put out advertisements stating that she would be willing to star in customized pornographic videos for a price and began to seek out and frequent hardcore pornographic chat rooms that fetishized necrophilia, sadomasochism, bondage, and torture. For several months, Sharon posted messages on websites for sex weight gain, sex bondage, foot fetish websites, and Amazon women admirers. A few of her messages read, Hi, my name is Nancy. I just made a VHS video of actual women willing and unwilling to be knocked out, drugged, under hypnosis, and chloroformed. Never before has a film been made like this that shows the real beauty of the sleeping victim. She also posted another message that read, Let me customize your most exciting bondage fantasy for you on VHS to watch and enjoy privately in the comfort of your own home. Prices start at $100. On one online platform, she asked if someone might be interested in force-feeding her until she reached a weight of 500 pounds. She apparently wanted someone to feed her as much food and drink as possible, forcibly, until she reached a weight of at least 500 pounds. At the time of her death, she weighed 189 pounds, so this would mean that she wanted someone to force feed her until she gained at least 310 pounds. Her online ad read, I am not interested in email correspondence or a phone feeding. What I would really like is the real thing. I am willing to be force fed to meet my goal if necessary. I am also willing to relocate if that's what it takes to find the right feeder. I am hoping someone out there will help me out and share in the most erotic experience of their life. I don't want to break up any marriages, so if you're married, please don't respond to this post. Ironic, considering that Sharon was, at the time, married and in a committed relationship herself. Sharon Lopadka, or Nancy Carlson, had many alter egos on the World Wide Web. Typically, but depending on which website she was posting on, Nancy was a fit blonde woman who weighed 120 pounds. But on other sites, she was a 300-pound dominatrix willing to control and abuse any man who might be interested. At this time in her life, Sharon's sexual obsessions were beginning to blossom. But on the outside, nobody knew just how deep she had gone down the rabbit hole. She even kept these desires a secret from her husband, who at the time was completely oblivious. Neighbors would later say that, according to what they saw, Sharon and Victor were introverts who often kept to themselves. Many neighbors and acquaintances would see Victor jogging or riding his bike around the neighborhood, but they hardly ever saw Sharon. One neighbor, Beth Long, a registered nurse, even said, quote, I never saw her at all. She could have been a patient at the hospital and I wouldn't have ever known she was my neighbor." End quote. The people that lived around them also said that she and Victor didn't participate in neighborhood activities, and they never had any interest in getting to know them. They did note, however, that during Halloween, their family would give out full-sized candy bars, possibly to make up for the fact that they never came around. From the outside looking in, the couple was shy and introverted, but they also seemed pretty normal. But in reality, Sharon was actively typing away on her computer, selling sex and looking for a man to fulfill her darkest fantasies. 
Eventually, she became a regular visitor on websites like fetishfeet.com and sexbondage.com. And she would enter these chat rooms and ask around for someone who might be interested in sexual torture and murder. And now we're going to take our third ad break. So obviously 2023 is already well underway and life has gotten really busy for Courtney and I. We're actually thinking about starting up a merch line for Murdered America. I know a lot of you guys have asked us for that. But when we do start up the merch business, we're going to have a lot of stuff to do. And we're going to get ahead of it by using Stamps.com to mail and ship our products. Stamps.com lets you print your own postage and shipping labels right from your home or office. It's ready to go in minutes, so you can get back to running your business sooner. Stamps.com is like the post office, but elevated. Postage rates just increased again, unfortunately. But luckily, Stamps.com has the best discounts in the industry with rates you literally cannot find anywhere else, like up to 84% off USPS and UPS. So cut through some of that work and set your business up for success when you get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code MIA for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MIA. And now let's get back to today's story. A sex rights activist named Tanith Tear often frequented the same websites as Sharon Lepatka and actually saw the messages and chat room conversations at the time regarding her desire to be sexually tortured and murdered. Obviously, this was disturbing to Tanith, as she was open to accepting any sexual fantasy, but was opposed to anyone getting hurt in the process. After reading some of Sharon's public posts, Tanith became concerned with her bizarre messages and actually reached out to her in an attempt to change her mind and explain the difference between fantasy and reality. But Sharon had no interest in listening to her and rejected her messages, then eventually responded, saying, I want to surrender completely. I want to die. Tanith also said that Sharon had often headed into bondage chat rooms and had tried to establish her presence in the community in hopes of finding a person to carry out her twisted fantasy. In one last attempt, Tanith reached out to Sharon, expressing her concern, and Sharon replied, stating, I want the real thing. I didn't ask for you preaching to me. On August 22, 1996, Sharon entered a chat room specifically reserved for those who enjoy necrophilia, aka having sex with dead corpses, and asked, Want to talk about torturing to death? I have kind of a fascination with torturing till death, but of course I can't speak about it with my family. Apparently, after posting this message, Sharon received numerous messages from men who were interested in fulfilling her fantasy, but they all backed out once they found out that she was being 100% serious. After the news of her murder broke, bondage enthusiasts from various chat rooms and forums even went on the record and stated that they had concluded Sharon was seriously on the hunt for someone to kill her. But it seemed that Sharon was out of luck. No matter how perverse her internet fantasies were, no matter how dark her mind could get, no one was ever going to give her what she really wanted. That was until August of the year 1996. Eventually, Sharon would find a willing participant in her own torture and murder, a man who was willing to carry out her deviant wishes and her deepest desires, Robert or Bobby Frederick Glass, who went by the pseudonym Slowhand. In the month of August, 1996, Bobby and Sharon would meet in a sexually oriented chat room. At the time, as stated online, Bobby's sexual fetish was inflicting pain during sex, and Sharon's sexual fetish was a desire to be tortured. On that fateful day, when Sharon saw his internet profile, she immediately became infatuated. Slowhand's profile said that he was born on Valentine's Day and that he was a good lover. Bobby, on his profile, also stated that he was into various deviant sexual behaviors, and that really turned Sharon on. Some of these behaviors included sadomasochism. 
Sadomasochism is a mixture of two behaviors, sadism and masochism, and it can be grouped into a category of sexual problems called paraphilias. Sexual masochists like to be subjected to humiliation, beatings, and verbal abuse in order to achieve an orgasm. Think typical dom sub behavior. You beat someone down, spit on them, tell them that they're worse than nothing. That's what a masochist craves. Sometimes the masochist will be bound and gagged and engage in sexual activities like bondage, simulated rape, and spankings. Sharon in this situation was a masochist. On the other hand, sadists are people who achieve climax through inflicting physical or psychological pain and suffering on their sexual partner. Think of someone who gets off to slapping, raping, or torturing others. That's who Bobby Glass or Slowhand stated that he was, a masochist Sharon and a sadist Bobby. So sexually, they were the perfect match. The man behind the pseudonym Slowhand was a 45-year-old computer analyst who worked for the local Catawba County government in North Carolina, named Bobby Glass. Considered to be an introvert to all who knew him, Bobby was a good employee and had been for the past 16 years. He earned a good salary of $38,281 annually and worked in computer programming, where he created programs for tracking fuel consumption of local county vehicles and helped with the voter data and tax rolls. Although he was introverted, Bobby wasn't a hermit and people in town all knew his name. He was an active member of the Rotary Club and came from the prominent Glass family, a family that was well-known throughout the rural community. Bobby was your typical all-American guy from the outside looking in. No issues with friends, no issues with family, just a true average Joe. At the time, Bobby and his wife Sherry had been married for 14 years and together they had had three children. Sherry would later say that Bobby's passion was computers and that he spent most of his time at home away from family in order to spend more time on the internet. But seeing as the internet was such a new, exciting thing back then in 1996, it really wasn't that suspicious. It was just the thing to be on, the internet. But according to Sherry, Bobby's wife, she knew that something was up almost immediately. At the time, Sherry had a gut feeling that Bobby was talking to other women on the internet, and she knew that she needed to do something. He had been neglecting his responsibilities, both with work and his family, for months. And one day, she decided to go through his computer to see what was up. While searching, she discovered multiple emails exchanged between her husband and other women, most of which she would describe as, quote, raw, violent, and inappropriate, end quote. Emails that Bobby had sent under pseudonyms such as Slowhand and Toyman. Sherry ultimately confronted her husband about these messages, but he didn't have much to say in his defense. Armed with this disturbing information, Sherry kicked her husband out of her home in May of 1996 and shortly after she filed for divorce. But Bobby viewed this as a win. You see, after his wife and kids were suddenly out of the picture, Bobby now had more time for the internet and for his new online lover. And this new lover was none other than Sharon Lepatka. The two had become acquainted in an alt-sex news group when Sharon posted a message under the pseudonym Nan Concentric that read, wanna talk about torturing to death? I hope you all don't think I'm strange or anything. Intrigued after reading this message, Bobby sent Sharon a message. And over the next six weeks, the two would exchange almost 900 graphic sexual emails. Police would later say that when the chat logs and messages were printed out, they totaled just over 870 pages. Police Captain Danny Barlow would later say, If you put all their messages together, you'd have a very large novel. It would be very thick, and I think you could say it would have a very sad ending. Investigators said that through the retrieved messages on Sharon's computer, it was obvious that she wanted Bobby to strangle her during sex, and she was very graphic in her request. In fact, Sharon was practically begging Bobby to torture, abuse, and murder her. In return, Bobby would message her back under the pseudonym of Slowhand, letting her know in very graphic detail exactly how 
he would torture and kill her. Bobby, when writing to Sharon, would describe a slow sexual torture that would ultimately lead to Sharon's strangulation and death. These messages are apparently so graphic, so obscene, that they have never been released to the public. We tried for hours to find any sort of text from these emails, but it doesn't exist online. So it just speaks to how disturbing these messages must have been. According to various experts that have studied this case, it could be determined that Sharon had autoassassinophilia, a fetish in which a person becomes sexually aroused at the thought of being murdered. The term was coined by sexologist John Money, who said that people suffering from autoassassinophilia are aroused by carrying out or staging the murder of a sexual participant. Considered a paraphilia, like pedophilia or exhibitionism, autoassassinophilia is characterized by sexual encounters in which a person fully commits to an extreme sadist for a staged or real murder. According to the Psychology Dictionary, an autoassassinophile is defined as, quote, a person who pretends he or she is in danger of being murdered to achieve an orgasm, end quote. Keep in mind that the entire time that Sharon was selling sex videos online, begging strangers to force feed her and sexually fantasizing about her own murder, her husband, Victor, was blissfully unaware. There was nothing that would have led him to believe that his wife, Sharon, was secretly Nancy Carlson, the sexual deviant willing to let any man strangle, rape, and kill her at the blink of an eye. Eventually, though, some desires jump from the screen to the real world, and this leads us back to October 1996 in North Carolina. Now, Bobby's trailer was far from charming. The lawn was littered with rusted toys and garbage, and it almost looked like it was abandoned. He had four puppies that chewed on furniture, wood, and pretty much anything in sight, and his place was constantly a mess. Police officers who eventually searched his home would later say that there were dirty dishes piled up in the sink and trash all throughout the home. And it was a far cry from his childhood home where his father, Joe Glass, had really established himself and his family in their community. Bobby's father had helped bring a fire station and an ambulance service to the community to make it a better place for people to live and work. He cared for the town and for the people who lived there. Ironically, Bobby's decrepit, rotting trailer sat less than a mile away from his father's mansion, just a little bit further down on Glass Road. At the time of the murder, the Glass family's once beautiful mansion with large wooden shutters engraved with the letter G sat abandoned and in a state of ruin. And each morning, Bobby would drive past his childhood home on his way to the government job, which was about 40 miles away. Bobby chose to live the simple life, out of the way of other people. And he spent most of his time browsing fetish websites and engaging in disturbing anonymous sexual conversations. To many people that knew him, he loved music, photography, and model railroads. On his AOL account, he wrote, quote, moderation in all things, including moderation. But behind closed doors, Bobby was a monster. After months of chatting online, Sharon and Bobby, or Nancy and Slowhand, decided that it was finally time to meet each other. On October 13th, 1996, Sharon left her husband a note at home and drove her blue Honda Civic to Baltimore, Maryland, where she would board a southbound train to Charlotte, North Carolina. That morning, Sharon had kissed her husband, Victor, and told him that she was just off to visit some friends in Georgia and that she would return home in a few days. But on that morning, Sharon was filled with excitement. In fact, she could barely contain it. It was finally time to live out her deepest and most certainly darkest sexual desires. She wasn't on her way to Georgia to see friends. She was on her way to North Carolina to see her online boyfriend, a man that would promise her that he would torture and kill her. So at 9.15 a.m., Sharon boarded the train to her final destination with the hope and determination that Slowhand could fulfill all of her desires, and that he would. Sharon arrived in Charlotte, North Carolina at 8.45 p.m., having traveled over 400 miles to meet her internet lover, Slowhand. On that evening, Bobby drove to the train station in his pickup truck and he picked up Sharon at around 9 p.m., arriving just on time like a gentleman. 
On that fateful night, the two would leave the city of Charlotte and head right towards rural Caldwell County, nearly 80 miles away, where Bobby's old rundown turquoise trailer was located. And this is where the story starts to get a little blurry. To this day, nobody knows exactly what happened between Bobby Glass and Sharon Lepatka in the three days between October 13th and October 16th. According to the autopsy reports, Sharon's body wasn't bruised or beaten before her death. So it's unknown if the extreme torture portion of her fantasy was ever fulfilled. But what is known is that she was eventually murdered after being strangled by Bobby Glass on October 16, 1996. And afterwards, he buried her body outside of his trailer. Now, everyone can have their theories on what happened, but no one really knows. Even though Bobby claimed that the murder was an accident, according to all of the previous chat logs and all of the evidence, it wasn't. But still, Sharon had shown up that day with the express desire to be murdered. So in the end, we will truly never know what really happened, making this one of the most bizarre cases we've ever heard of. Let's fast forward past the point when the police eventually discovered Sharon's body in the trailer yard and past the point of Bobby Glass's arrest. You have to understand, at the time this news story was huge. You see, after Sharon's murder, people were both fascinated and disturbed when they learned about the details behind the crime. And still, to this day, this murder is disturbing. In fact, it's so disturbing that I chose to write this episode myself because I felt that when researching this case, almost nobody knows that it happened. At the time, back in 1996, many people were speculating that Sharon's marriage to Victor was an unhappy one, that her size and weight led to her having a deep depression, and they believed that there were other factors that may have led Sharon to want to self-harm. But friends who knew her said she wasn't depressed. Diane Safer, her neighbor and former business partner, told the Baltimore Sun, quote, What I want people to know is the woman I knew was not crazy in the slightest. She was always a happy person, end quote. After Sharon's murder, the online BDSM community was also having a hard time dealing with the news. On the public message board for alt-sex bondage, one member spoke out about the news coverage regarding their lifestyle. That she found someone to do it under the guise of bondage or sadomasochism is going to be the rallying cry of those who condemn our lifestyle. Another member, sex educator Nancy Ava Miller, said the community was trying to distance themselves from the consensual death of Sharon. I don't know what they were doing, but it wasn't S&M, she was quoted as saying. However, another member of the alt-sex group where the couple met, a member named Pero Loco, said he interacted with Bobby and believed he was a compassionate man but simply not smart in his endeavors. Pero was quoted as saying, He's a compassionate man but was unfortunately stupid for not insisting that Sharon, Lady L, bring her hard disk with her for him to wipe, not to mention that he should have taken her somewhere safer to do her. And now we're going to take our final ad break. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. Trust me, I literally dropped out of film school because I was so busy with my YouTube channel at the time and everything was kind of moving so fast for me that I didn't feel like I had enough time to take three full semesters of Spanish. I just didn't have the time. But now thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. With Babbel, I've actually been revisiting Spanish because I want to do a documentary in Mexico sometime at the end of this year, so I'm trying to pick up some of the language so that I can actually and authentically speak with locals. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. So, right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash MIA. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash MIA for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. And now, let's finish today's story.
At the time, the police were also having a hard time grappling with the news. They had copies of multiple emails and chat logs where Sharon confessed she wanted to be murdered. However, the law states that a person couldn't consent to their own demise. The search warrant affidavits that were presented to Judge Beale indicated that Sharon specifically traveled to North Carolina for Bobby to torture and murder her. And police captain Danny Barlow said that after reviewing Bobby's emails that were written under the name Slowhand, it was determined that Sharon's death was deliberate and not accidental as he had claimed. According to Captain Barlow, the emails exchanged between Slowhand and Nancy Carlson, AKA Bobby Glass and Sharon Lepatka, graphically stated that their plans were that Bobby would deliberately torture and kill Sharon. And this proved that the murder was premeditated. So at the time, Bobby was facing a first degree murder charge and his bond was denied. After the news of this murder broke and the details were leaked to the media, the sensationalism surrounding the case grew so large that Judge Beale even issued a gag order to everyone involved who was working on the case. You have to imagine that this was one of the first, if not the first murder case involving emails and the internet. Of course, the media wanted to report on it. And boy, would they. This gag from Judge Beale did nothing. There was already so much information out there about the murder that the media simply took the information that they already had and ran with it, and in turn created a frenzy surrounding the case. Many news stories focused on the negative aspects of the internet and the danger of meeting a stranger from a chat room. Other debates and on-air discussions included calls for censorship to protect children and to prevent further murders and deaths from happening. This media frenzy grew so wide that anti-censorship groups even released their own information against the idea of internet censorship, stating that the internet allowed people to express themselves and their ideas freely because of the concept of anonymity, and that some fantasies are simply that, fantasies. The case was so influential that it even spawned new psychological studies and terms. You see, it was around this time that the term Mardi Gras phenomenon was coined by psychologists as a term to describe people who use the internet to mask their true identity by hiding behind a computer screen. The publicity surrounding Sharon's case also gave rise to a movement within the field of psychology that attempted to help doctors and researchers better understand deviant sexual behaviors like masochism, sadism, and asphyxia. If you don't know, asphyxia is a form of sex play practiced by sadomasochists and many others in which a sexual partner is strangled to decrease oxygen to the brain, which can intensify an orgasm. In fact, the term derived from sexual strangulation is called asphyxophilia. However, obviously, engaging in such risky sexual behavior can result in accidental death due to asphyxia. According to the BDSM community, exploring and engaging in asphyxia during sex is considered edge play. Edge play is trusting another person with your life, and the thrill comes from the danger and vulnerability a person feels during the activity. Asphyxia can be practiced safely, but as with anything in life that's dangerous, there can always be consequences. There are numerous theories that suggest why a person might want to explore and participate in deviant sexual behavior, theories that deal with childhood trauma and all other sorts of things, but there's absolutely no evidence that either Bobby or Sharon suffered from any trauma in their childhood or had any abnormal sexual experiences. It remains unknown to this day what drove a seemingly normal woman, a normal devoted wife, to consent to her own torture and murder. After her body was discovered in a shallow grave, Sharon's corpse was sent to the chief medical examiner, Dr. John Butts, for an autopsy. After the examination, he determined that Sharon died on October 16th 1996, three days after arriving at Bobby's trailer, and the cause of death was strangulation. Interestingly, there was no indication that she had been sexually tortured or mutilated before her death. Once again, to this day, it is unknown what exactly happened during those three days. Were they truly living out their dark sexual fantasies? Did he torture her in creative ways? Or were they just hanging around the house until she was eventually murdered? Nobody knows. Bobby's attorney, Neil Beach, would later say that the autopsy findings matched what really happened. 
Sharon's death was accidental. It's hard for me to believe the woman was tortured for three days if the medical examiner of North Carolina couldn't find any indication of that. It's much easier to understand or picture an accident occurring during sexual activity than it is to conjure up an image of this man as a cold-blooded, premeditated killer. If you have a plan for killing someone, you're going to have prior arrangements made for disposing of the body. This wasn't the case. Bobby was incarcerated at the Caldwell County Jail for three years after several lengthy delays. And on January 27th, 2000, he pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter in possession of child pornography. At the time, Bobby was also charged with six counts of second degree sexual exploitation of a minor after police uncovered child porn at his trailer. After all was said and done, Bobby was sentenced to 36 to 53 months at the Avery Mitchell Correctional Institution for the voluntary manslaughter of Sharon Lepatka. That's right, he received a sentence of three to four and a half years in prison for murdering Sharon. As for the child porn charges, Bobby was sentenced to an additional 21 to 26 months. According to an article in the Baltimore Sun, Bobby received a shorter sentence because he didn't have a criminal record. He also received credit for the months served while he was incarcerated waiting for his sentencing. So due to his clean record and the time served, at the end of it all, Bobby would only have to stay in prison for another 27 months, a little over two years. After Bobby was found guilty, Sharon's husband, Victor, would state that he and the rest of her family just wanted the matter to end. He also said that he was certain Bobby wasn't telling the truth. While serving his time in prison, Bobby became a model prisoner. He mostly kept to himself and read books. Assistant District Attorney Andrew Jennings said that Bobby never tried to file any other court documents regarding his convictions. According to Assistant District Attorney Andrew, he was a model prisoner. He had books that he read. He was very interested in computers. That was his job. From the information we had here, he was a very intelligent man. He never had any trouble in prison or custody, nothing that we heard about. Just two weeks before his scheduled release, on February 20th, 2002, Bobby Glass was found dead in his prison cell at the Avery Mitchell Correctional Facility in Spruce Pine, North Carolina from an apparent heart attack and was pronounced dead at 1.30 a.m. at a local hospital. He was 51 years old at the time of his death. As we stated earlier, the case of Sharon Lepadka would be the first case where a suspect was arrested based on email messages and internet activity. In 1996, the internet was still in its infancy with the rise of chat rooms, websites, and email messages. It really was the wild, wild, unregulated West. And when looking at the facts of the case itself, it seems that this would be an isolated incident of consensual homicide. But nearly five years later, Germany would be horrified by the tale of Armin Mewis. Armin Mewis would be sentenced to life in prison after meeting his victim, Bern Brandt, on an online forum titled Cannibal Cafe. Over the span of a few following days, Armin would cook and eat parts of his willing victim after the two exchanged sexual messages over the internet. Bern, in fact, had told Armin that he was willing to be murdered and cannibalized for sexual gratification. And that's exactly what eventually happened. During Armin's eventual trial, the court shared the email exchange between the two men. Here's that. From Bern Brandes. Thanks for your mail. You really turned me on. Winter with the temperature at around 5 to 15 degrees below freezing is good weather for slaughter. Great to be naked and tied in weather like that and to be driven to the slaughter. Where you then stun me and I collapse. You then hang me up, jerking, and cut my carotid artery. Warm blood flows. Everything goes routinely. I don't have any chance to escape my slaughter at the last moment. It's a real turn on. The feeling of being at your mercy, being in your possession, having to give up my flesh. In response, a message from Armin read, It'll be awesome, anyway. Your tasty body on show like that, spicing it. Tying you up will be no problem. I've got rope and some cuffs for your hands and feet. I'll really enjoy the bit with the needles. I'll see if I can get hold of some really long ones. I can't wait for you to be here. Surprisingly, in this day and age, there are now more cases of consensual homicide than there were back then, although it is extremely rare. One of Sharon's neighbors would later tell reporters that maybe the true tragedy of the case was that the internet truly isn't a free space, that we should all view this as a lesson 
instructing us not to engage in this sort of sexual activity on the internet with strangers. But to the online BDSM community, the outcome of Sharon's faith was not something that they had ever promoted or engaged in. In fact, they distanced themselves as far away as they could from the case of Bobby Glass and Sharon Lepatka. According to Psychology Today, BDSM can be part of a normal, healthy relationship. It says, quote, early psychologists viewed BDSM-related interest as pathological, leading many in the kink community to feel intense shame about their desires. Today, however, many researchers and clinicians acknowledge that BDSM can be part of a healthy sexual expression. However, if the interest and behaviors involve non-consenting parties or cause the individual distress, they may indicate a mental health disorder, end quote. And the desire to engage in BDSM behaviors is quite common. According to statistics, nearly 30% of couples have tried spanking in the bedroom and 25% have tried dominant submissive role play. People who practice BDSM report that the benefits include a deeper sense of trust that comes from setting boundaries. And it gives a feeling of emotional safety that comes through communication. And this communication is all about what will and will not be permitted in the bedroom. As a result, relationships that include BDSM usually have better sexual communication than couples that don't. So there is absolutely no kink shaming here at Murder in America. And if you're two consenting adults, then it's perfectly okay. But clearly this situation is on a whole different level. And it's dangerous if a person is so deeply ingrained with their fetish that they have a desire to end someone's life or their own. The mystery surrounding the Sharon Lepatka case still baffles many people to this day. No one will ever know if it was a fantasy taken too far, if it was a sexual liaison gone wrong, or if she was deadly serious in her desire to find someone to end her life. The case included every aspect of shock journalism, a dingy trailer, sex, torture, death, and of course, the internet. But the most shocking of all was the confession, revealed through numerous email exchanges that implied Sharon had left Maryland of her own free will in order to be sexually tortured and murdered by a man she had never met. The last two posts she ever wrote on the internet were regarding the videos she tried to sell. In those posts, Sharon wrote, Let me customize your most exciting torture fantasy for you on VHS to watch and enjoy privately in the comfort of your own home. A film designed by you with the scenarios of your choice. Films are shipped in plain envelopes to protect your privacy. When many people failed to receive their videos after sending payment, they labeled her a fraud and she responded with her final post, saying, I'm just one person trying to fill all these orders. I don't even have time to have a life. According to the Maryland State Police, who did an interview with the Baltimore Sun, Sharon had been actively trying to find someone locally for the same service in the months before her death. But even though she was unsuccessful locally, eventually Sharon would find Slowhand's profile. And I feel like anyone will agree that what happened to Sharon was horrible. And to her family and friends, it was a complete shock to find out her secret life. A former neighbor, Deborah Walker, said that everyone who knew Sharon believed she was a normal work from home wife. The suburb of Hampstead, Maryland, after all, is your typical all American town. A resident of Hampstead was quoted saying, I guess some people have some kind of inner thing going on that you just never know about. I think we all knew them as well as anyone in the neighborhood. She was just like anyone else. And that kind of scares me in a way to think you never really know somebody." End quote. And I think that really is the takeaway from this story. Do you ever really know somebody? Especially in this day and age. Sure. You can hang out with your friends and family members from sunset to sundown, but still, you never know exactly what they're doing in the shadows, especially with how integrated smartphones, computers, apps, and the internet are in our lives today. So what do you think? Was Sharon Lepatka's death an unintentional murder 
Was it a straight up homicide? Or did she finally reach that level of pleasure that she obviously craved day in and day out? That's a question to which I think we'll never have an answer. But just always keep one eye open because you never know what your friend, husband, wife, or child is searching on the internet the moment that you step out of the room. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. Thank you for listening to this week's new episode of Murder in America. This is a case that I personally wanted to cover. Courtney and I had never heard of it before I was researching consensual homicide because I think it's such a just strange concept. And I felt like no one's really talking about this case and it was really interesting to kind of dive deep in and and figure out what exactly happened in that trailer. But I want to shout out our new patrons this week, Kate, Brianna Raposo, Jimmy Rogers, Easton Reigns, Carlos Maya, Trina Dilbeck, Tony Milnes, Jen Blocker, Amila Gordon, Cynthia, Vanessa Gill, Alicia Quarles, Cheyenne, Rick Holywinko, Rachel Womble, Colleen Barishfam, Kiara Renti, Zurich Collins, Hunter Boyce, Monica Rodriguez, Jenna Homeyer, and Lexi Ford. Oh my gosh. Every single week, guys, we have more and more patrons, and it's so beautiful. So if you guys don't know what Patreon is, you can go to patreon.com and search Murder in America. And on our Patreon, every single week, we release the ad-free version of our episodes. So if you're listening to the show, you don't like those ad breaks, head on over to Patreon and become a member today. Come join the family. You can also follow us on Instagram where we post case photos from every case that we cover. We just hit 30,000 followers on Instagram, so we're really happy and appreciative of that. Thank you to everybody. And you can also join our Facebook group. We're on Facebook, Murder in America fans. So just come join us. We pop in and out and chat and make friends. It's an awesome little safe space for all of us. But yeah, we're just so incredibly appreciative of all of y'all out there. And we have some really, really... Well, actually, next week's episode has a really great twist to it. So thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you on the next one.